we very quickly discovered that what we thought we knew was only the tip of the iceberg. This case opened a window and out of that window, we saw things we did not like to see. Hi, I'm Yardley. This is Detective Dan. Hey there. And his identical twin brother, Detective Dave. Hello. And this is Small Town Dicks. You'll hear detectives from small towns around the world discuss their most memorable cases. We cover the intimate details of what went wrong and what went right. As these dedicated men and women search for justice and crack the case. Names and certain details have been changed to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. So please join us in maintaining their anonymity out of respect for what they've been through. Thank Thank you. you. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. I'm here with the A-Team. I have Detective Dan. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday to you. And I have Detective Dave. Happy afternoon in a Saturday in the winter. (laughs) For that super fan. Vague and specific all at once. Good day, Yardley. Good day, sir. And Small Town Fam, you have landed in the honeypot today because we are so thrilled to welcome back one of our new favorite guests, really deeply honored, retired Detective Chief Constable Tom. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Tom is in Scotland, small town fam. We have left the United States and leapt over to Europe via Zoom. Thank you, Zoom. So Tom is an author of several books. He has a long and storied career. So I'm just going to let you take it from here, Tom. Thank you very much. I want to talk today about a fairly normal case or what looks like a normal case, but a case which has real food for thought and which had many consequences. Edinburgh in Scotland is a a city of about 400,000 people. It's not an industrial city. It's a city of the arts, of the sciences, of universities. It's the seat of government, etc. But it has a port, the port of Leith. Some of you may even have heard the old tongue twister, the Leith police dismissed us. <laughs> In that port, of course, there are sex workers. There have always been sex workers. You show me a port where there are sailors going about and I'll show you sex workers. And... Since the 18th and 19th century, there have been sex workers working in Leith. And they were pleased with a fairly light touch. There was a recognition that sex workers would always exist. If you try to suppress them, all you do is you drive them underground. The best way to deal with them is to manage it so as to make sure that the worst excesses of extortion, blackmail, pimping, etc. don't come on you. So there was a kind of a a relationship there between the sex workers of Leith and the local police. So in the spring of 1983, on the night in question, a young couple were Citizens Band Radio, shortwave radio fans. You know, CB radio, that was very popular at the time. They had gone down to the foreshore just along the old industrial part of Leith Docks because there was clear sight lines It was a filthy, wet, dirty night. And as they were driving along this rutted track, they saw in front of them 
a bag of rubbish and they've swerved to avoid running it over and damaging their car. They thought somebody had just thrown a bag of rubbish out of the car. When they passed it, they looked and they saw two feet sticking out of this bag of rubbish. And so they stopped, they got out, and they found it was the body of what they thought was a young woman. I say they thought it was a young woman. Their body had been flattened as if it had been run over or apparently run over several times. They looked for signs of life, but of course they weren't medics. They didn't know what to do. So they drove as quickly as they could away to find a telephone. Their car was full of shortwave radio, but they had no way of contacting the police. Why the shortwave radio? So they had to make their way to a telephone call box. It sounds like ancient history because everybody's got mobile phones now, but in these days it was telephone call boxes. So it was about 10 minutes before they got in touch with the local police station. And, of course, a police car arrived very shortly thereafter. And they found the badly mutilated body of Sheila Anderson. There were signs of life, and so ambulance was quickly called and was taken up to the hospital. But as soon as Sheila was unloaded at the hospital, it was discovered she was dead. She had quite clearly suffered from extensive crush injuries consistent with being run over by a car, perhaps not just once. With no witnesses, apparently, or seemingly, what was your first lead? How did you even go about investigating a case like this? Luckily enough, within the hospital emergency unit was a local policeman who was dealing with another case. And when he saw the young woman being brought in, covered in blood and dirt, of course he interested himself, and he actually thought that he recognised her. He recognised her as a young woman who lived and was brought up in the area he worked. And he knew her because he knew she was a sex worker and she was called Sheila Anderson. So we had identified her and the cause of death within a couple of hours of her being found. So immediately our first line of inquiry was that it had been perhaps a hunter, a customer who she had picked up. The lead investigator was a very famous detective of his generation called Jim Wilson, Detective Chief Inspector Jim Wilson, who I learned a lot from. And he said, look, let's leave this open. Let's try and suggest that this may have been an accident. This may have been a road traffic accident. And try and tempt the driver to come forward. Well, it wasn't a strong chance, but it was a chance. And so that's how we played it in the first 24 hours or so. We said, there's been a motor vehicle accident. Young woman has died. Anybody coming forward, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, nobody was going to come forward to admit that they'd been involved. But within hours of us finding her body, we got reports from other street girls who had actually seen Sheila interacting with a customer in a car just about two hours before her body was found. And we learned that Sheila had the habit of going with clients in their cars to secluded spots to fulfill their contract. It was also known that Sheila was a fairly feisty girl who was able to stand up for herself. And she was prone to argue with her customers. If somebody tried to roll her or refuse payment, if she felt she'd been cheated, she would actually enter into an aggressive confrontation with them. Ah, go Sheila. And on one occasion, we knew that having fallen out with a customer, 
she'd actually got out of the car she was in and gone and stood in front of the car of her customer and refused to move until she got paid. And from her injuries, it looked as if that's what she had done and that the punter, the customer, had literally driven over her and perhaps reversed back over her again to get away. There were several items of her personal belongings that were missing. We knew she'd had a coat and we knew she'd had a handbag. These were missing. And so this added weight to the theory that she'd been in a car, she'd had an argument, she'd got out of the car, leaving her coat and her handbag in it, and then had stood in front of the car and had been run over. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sheila was one of an unfortunate generation of people here in Scotland, the first generation of accidental prostitutes. About how old was she? She was 26 when she died. In the late 1970s, Edinburgh was one of the first cities in the UK to be badly hit by the first wave of heroin. And a lot of kids in the local housing schemes started taking heroin And Sheila Anderson was a bright, bonny young girl who got hooked on heroin and ended up as being a casual sex worker. When I say she was a casual sex worker, I mean she did sex work when she wanted to earn money for drugs. She was not out in the streets every night or even every week, only as and when she needed money for drugs. Did she have another job when she wasn't doing that? By the time she died, she didn't have another job, but she had had another job. The trouble is that once she got hooked on heroin, her behaviour changed and she became unreliable and she very soon lost the job. Not only had she lost the job, but she had become estranged from her husband and her two young children and she was living in more or less a drug squat. So we started to investigate this and first thing we did was we went to see the traditional street girls in Leith to find out what intelligence they could give us. And actually, they were very forthcoming. I mean, if you ever speak to sex workers, if you want to hear the truth, speak to one of them because they'll tell you exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. They're a very, very candid group of people. And we found that under our noses, in the space of about six months, the whole scene had completely changed we very quickly discovered that what we thought we knew about the operations of the sex industry 
was only the tip of the iceberg and that there was an awful lot more going on than we or our criminal intelligence actually knew. The old street women had disappeared off the street and they had been replaced by very young, drug-using, part-time prostitutes. And whereas the older women had been streetwise and had been able to look after themselves to an extent, these young girls were completely reckless, just disorganised, chaotic, and furthermore, because there were so many of them, it had driven down the price. So these girls were out there on the streets selling sex for two or three pounds, which is like five dollars. Up until the 1970s, the street sex workers of Leith it comprised mainly older women, when I say older, in their 20s, experienced, streetwise, and they looked after themselves and they were fairly wary. But when heroin arrived and when it was 15 and 16-year-olds down on the streets selling themselves for two or three pounds, completely chaotic, half the time they were spaced out on drugs anyway, totally unable to protect themselves, then they became like subject of a feeding frenzy. Because not only had the sex workers changed, but the punters, the people who used them, had also changed. Whereas it had been the sailors from the port who had used the services of the sex workers before, now people were coming from far and wide attracted by these very, very young, completely reckless girls. And that's when the violence escalated. Violent offenders started appearing on the scene. They could get away with assaulting them because they weren't going to report it to the police because they had no relationship with the police because of the drugs factor. What we had to do was build that relationship and say, OK, you might take heroin and you might buy heroin. All of that's illegal. But you know what? What we're really concerned about is your safety. And one of the first things we did was we set up a static watch. We rented a house right in the red light district and we started to take observations on cars that came through that district. And we found that people were coming from as far as 100 miles away. And we found that some of the people that were coming were serious, violent criminals. They were coming to sell drugs. They were coming to buy drugs. They were coming to try to pimp the girls. And we discovered this had quickly grown under our feet. It was a horror story. Were those girls, the 15 and 16-year-olds, were they runaways? Most of them, tragically, when you look at them, most of them had been in the care of the local authority. Most of them had been in children's homes. And we had this terrible gap between when you get to a certain age You leave the children's home and you just fall into an abyss. The economics of heroin are fairly harsh. Once you're addicted, there's only three ways you can support your addiction. You can either be of significant individual wealth, and very few are, or you can steal the money to sustain your habit, and many people did, or you can sell yourself. And of course, many young women either to support their own habits or to support the habits of their family, were forced into the sex industry. At that time, a £100 a day habit was not uncommon. In the early 80s, 
£100 a day, every day, seven days a week, was a lot of money to raise. And so people found themselves on this wheel of constantly having to either steal or sell themselves whatever they could to get the drug that they needed. And Sheila Anderson was just one of many, many victims of that first wave of heroin to hit us. It was quite clear that what had grown under our feet just since heroin arrived was a complete change to the street sex scene. So we had a criminal intelligence file on street sex workers at the local police station, which might as well have been an antiquarian document. It was completely out of date. And the scene was changing every week and every day. New girls would arrive, the older girls would disappear, there was no continuity, the punters would come from far and wide, and they knew there was a police investigation going on, even though they knew they were going to get stopped by the police. They still came. We found from our observations that there were senior civil servants, there were lawyers, there were retired policemen, there were ministers... There were a whole collection of people all coming down to use these girls. The problem was that getting any kind of information out of these girls was almost impossible because they couldn't remember what day it was, let alone who they'd seen or what happened. But we could tell by many of their injuries that they were carrying, they had been the subject of extreme violence. Some people abused these girls terribly, knowing that they were addicted to drugs. They would treat them in the most appalling and violent fashion. So what that made us do is made us stop and think about the sex industry and recognise that this was not only or even primarily a law enforcement issue. It was actually a public health issue because there was the potential for the spread of venereal disease And of course, a couple of years later, when AIDS and HIV appeared on the scene, there was also a huge potential for the spread of a deadly disease. So what we did was we built a partnership with our public health colleagues from the local health board. We also selected, very carefully selected, a very mature and very hard-nosed woman police officer. Pat, Pat Ellis was her name, And we gave her the job to be the prostitute liaison officer. And we said, work discretionary shifts, do what you like. And Pat was absolutely key to it because she was a really feisty, experienced, no-nonsense lady who could speak to these girls in language they understood and they could speak to her in the same way. And there was an exchange of information. So, for instance, if one of them had been threatened or assaulted, they felt confident enough in Pat And they started to feed information to Pat about people who they considered to be threatening. And we also told Pat to try to establish some prostitute help groups. In other words, voluntary groups, some of them run through the local church, to try and reach out to the girls, not to change their behaviour, but to make their behaviour safer and also to give them help and assistance. It did allow us to intervene very early in things like drugs, extortion, blackmail, and crimes of violence. And so we managed to nip a lot of these things in the bud. And so we put that in place in the late 1980s, and we also decided to 
identify what we called a zone of discretionary prosecution. Now, what that meant was that this was an area of industrial buildings away from any houses, and we told the prostitute groups that, look, if you have no more than 12 girls working in that particular area, and if they don't cause any trouble and we don't get any complaints about them, then we have other things to do. But if there is trouble, and if there is pimping, if there is drugs, if anybody gets ruled or attacked or assaulted, then we will not have other things to do, and we will come and we will enforce the law. And so we struck a bargain with the sex workers, and that worked. Was there a certain amount of self-policing because of this discretionary prosecution strategy? I'm sure there's a pecking order where they're kind of pushing people out saying, hey, it's not your night. There's already too many people here. Yeah, there was. And that was particularly the case with underagers. We made it very clear that if we found any girl under 18 on the streets, then all bets were cancelled. And there was a high degree of self-policing. The girls recognised that they didn't want to rock the boat because they were getting a degree of protection and they were allowed to go about their business. And so we obviously policed it and we had the prostitute liaison officer and we responded to calls, et cetera, et cetera. But it was self-regulating. And it was particularly effective when HIV came on the scene because we then had routes of communication. We knew who to speak to. We knew what the scene was and we knew who was and wasn't about. We also used to get very early warning if any criminals were trying to move in on the sex industry. The sex industry and extortion, blackmail, drugs, they go hand in hand. They're always together. And what we managed to do was to some extent separate them. And there was a very, very low infection rate and we had no further serious assaults. Any punter who turned up and was violent was immediately reported through the prostitute help group. We got told about it and we were on their tail. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey folks, Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. 
I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is Simply Safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash smalltown. That's simplysafe.com slash smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Now, as regards Sheila Anderson's murderer, we've never found him. A few years later, when DNA started to come to the fore and we started to pick up DNA traces, we actually recovered some forensic evidence from that crime scene. You know, in the early 1980s, forensic recovery and good crime scene management was not universal, but there's DNA recovery in this case because the forensic productions were well protected at the time. So we have a DNA profile, but we have never found him. We've tried familial, we've tried all the tricks of the book, but that case is still open. However, I live in hope. And I've told the guy who took over that runs the cold case unit now, I've told him that. I look forward to the day when some elderly gentleman gets a knock on the door (laughs) and has to answer the question about where they were in April 1983. How long before a case like that goes cold? Well, that's interesting because... The key to a cold case is to keep it warm. (laughs) The Sheila Anderson case is an interesting case because it remains unsolved, but it had a huge blaze of publicity, of course, initially. And a lot of people come forward and give information and try to help. Some of the information is helpful, some is unhelpful. There's quite a lot of malice that comes out. You know, people who have boyfriends that they've fallen out with, they say, oh, well, I'm sure he used to use prostitutes, etc. you know, the usual sort of thing. So it was about four or five weeks, I think, of intensive investigation until the public started to become disengaged. That was made worse because in the summer of 1983, 
there was also the abduction and murder of a child from the Edinburgh area, and that took the public attention. The thing is this, you see, the thing is this. Talking about it now on your podcast, you never know. Somebody might be listening to that. It might ring a bell. One of the big problems with a, anything to do with the sex industry or vice is that witnesses are very reluctant to come forward. If they come forward and say they've seen something, they've got to explain why they were where they were in the first place and why they were doing what they were doing. And, of course, in the moment and immediately after, first of all, they think they might become suspects. But secondly, they might have to explain to their wives or their partners or their friends why they were where they were. But as time goes on and as years pass, that fear fades a bit. And if you can keep the case in the public consciousness, then you've got a very good chance still of getting new leads and new names And of course, if you've got historic forensic evidence, as we have, all you need is that name. Or you might get somebody who just phones up and says, listen, you know, on the night in question, my brother came home and he was this and he was that. It could be something as simple as that. But the Sheila Anderson case opened a window. And out of that window, we saw things we did not like to see. So poor Sheila... Is there anything positive? She left two children. Her life was a complete catastrophe caused by heroin. Some good came of it because it changed the way that we saw and changed the way that we dealt with and managed the sex industry from there on in. And I also felt that there but for fortune. I think people still don't realise the addictive nature of heroin particularly and how it can destroy your life. I was an inspector on that squad and I spent time speaking to members of Sheila's family and the horror of watching their bonny, vivacious, cheery daughter disappear in front of their eyes and nothing they could do. The feeling of absolute powerless was nothing they could do. The sex industry will always carry risk. You can never make the sex industry completely safe. It's impossible. All you can do is reduce risk. And I like to think that as a consequence of the measures we took, we reduced risk and improved our intelligence picture significantly. So it doesn't matter where you are geographically in this world. Sex work is always going to be there. And it always seems like it's the same circumstances And we want sex workers to know that you can talk to us. Law enforcement wants people involved in the sex worker industry to feel safe to come to us if they have concerns or especially about a punter or a john. Anything that is making the workers in that industry feel unsafe or weary, give us some intelligence. We can act on that. Yes, please talk to us. It seems like all these serial killers... You know, we had the Green River killer. He specifically targeted these women because he knew that there wasn't a relationship between the police and these women who are working out on the streets. So we want to break down that barrier. And you see it nationwide and worldwide that we want to break those barriers down so we can protect these women. Yeah, it's alarming to watch how precipitous the fall is when 
you have this financial instability or insecurity, you have drug addiction, alcohol addiction, and this feeling of hopelessness, how that will drive you into a circumstance that leads you to the sex industry. Law enforcement sees that often, and it's really difficult to watch, as well as, you know, the families having to witness this. It's tragic that substance abuse and that this drug, heroin and opiates, these prescription pills, can destroy your life so fast. Yeah. I saw drugs coming in the 1970s, and that changed everything. But it's interesting, Sheila Anderson, because... We were determined to make sure that Sheila was a worthy victim because whether you like it or not, there is a societal thing, you know, that, I don't know, it's, it's not said, it's not articulated, but if a sex worker got beaten up or assaulted or even murdered, well, that was, it was because she was doing what she was doing, you know, that sort of thing. And I think there's a real danger there. And that's why I talk about this case a lot because... Sheila Anderson deserved and she got exactly the same caliber of investigation as anybody else. And I still live in hope that I'll get a phone call one day say that we've got the guy or we've identified him through a familiar hit or something like that. I do too. I do love that the cases that you've covered with us on this podcast are ones that have brought lasting change to the way police departments in Scotland do things like... In the World's End case, everyone learned that you shouldn't rely on DNA evidence alone to convict your suspect. And then in Vanished, agencies in Scotland learned that sharing information across county lines can be critical. It gives me hope, and it makes me feel like, at the very least, the victims of these horrific crimes didn't die in vain. Well, that's right. It's important for your own mind state. You've been involved in these cases for so long. And and between them, these cases, particularly the serial killer cases, I mean, they took up much of the the centre part of 20 years of my career where I was working on these cases. So you've got to try and find a positive or or try and drive a positive, try and learn something. You think about the older generation of these women, which are only six or seven, maybe eight years older than these 15 and 16-year-olds, these 15 and 16-year-olds are attracting a completely different type of punter. That's pedophilia. Yeah. If convicted in our country, you'd be a registered sex offender. Absolutely. So just adding to the equation that now you've got a totally different kind of predator out there. Right. Well, you really are. I remember speaking to the head of CID at that time. Which is essentially the same thing as the plainclothes detective units that we have here in the U.S. Yeah, he was a wily old character. And he said to me, Tommy said, we've got enough perverts of our own. We don't need to attract them in from all over the place. And I mean, that was a very good point. I mean, what we were actually doing by this happening, we were actually attracting serious violent offenders from all over Scotland. I mean, you know, something's going to happen. So there was a very, very pragmatic view that we had to get back in control of this. Otherwise, we were going to find ourselves, again, catching serious crime committed by people from hundreds of miles away.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Are those programs still in place for the sex workers to help build community? Yes, they are. But unfortunately, everything changed. The first thing that happened was this old commercial area, which had been warehouses and offices and places where nobody lived, was suddenly gentrified. They knocked down all the warehouses and they built very expensive flats. And so very soon we got complaints. Pat was in that role for two to three years and then she handed on to someone else that she brought up. But that role ceased to exist when the zone of tolerance ceased to exist. And now the sex industry is very much online. And I'm not convinced that we have the same. And this is not me as an old cop saying, oh, I was better in my day. I don't mean that at all. I don't think that's true. But we do not have the same lines of communication and grip because now the sex industry has disappeared online. We don't know who, we don't know where, and we don't know what. And these are the three sort of key factors of all criminal intelligence, who, where, and what. We have a cyber crime unit, of course, here, as all police units will have. But I'm not confident that uh, they have the ability to be able to monitor it as effectively as we were monitoring it. There's also now a lot of trafficking in people into the sex industry, particularly from Eastern Europe. I worked for a while, I went across in an attachment to Amsterdam, and of course Amsterdam's famous for its red light district, and all these girls in shop windows and all the rest of it. You could always tell which part of the world was doing well and which part of the world was not doing well by the nationality of the girls in the windows. So if you're in the window, chances are the economy in your home country is struggling. Exactly. So when I first visited Amsterdam, there was girls from the Middle East. The last time I was in Amsterdam, it was Eastern Europeans. Romanians, Albanians, Russians, who had been trafficked there by people to make money from them. So it's a snapshot of who's doing well in the world and who's not, by who's working in the sex industry. That's a really good point. Tom, you've seen so much in your storied career. What about this case made it so memorable for you? Is it your only cold case? No, I was involved in one or two other cold cases, but I think this is particularly important to me because... Because of the tragedy of this girl's life, the photographs her father gave us, the last photograph he had of her was when she was a schoolgirl. And then to see how she ended up. But, you know, the other thing about it is, is I know that case is there to be solved. That case is there to be solved. And it annoys me that so far we haven't. And I hope to live to see it resolved. You know, it's coming on 40-odd years ago, so... If the guy himself was in his 30s or 40s and most of the people that used the street women were that age group, 
The perpetrator himself could well be dead by now. But even so, I'd like to know who it was. Absolutely. I hope you find out too, and then I hope you come and tell us. You'll be the first to be notified. I'll be on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Tom, before we let you go, we'd love for you to plug your books for our fans. Right. Well, if you want to read about the birth of forensic science, if you're interested in forensic science at all, then you must read Ruxton, The First Modern Murder. Buck Ruxton was a doctor who murdered and dissected the bodies of his wife and his maidservant in 1935. And he cut up the bodies and he kept the body parts until they were partially decomposed. And then he disguised them by removing all visible signs of identification, including their gender. And then he dumped them in the borderlands of Scotland. And what followed that was the most remarkable coming together of academia, forensic science, police officers, lawyers. It was the first coordinated case. It was the first case where they introduced forensic entomology, facial superimposition, and dermal fingerprinting, in which the FBI had a hand. So it was a remarkable case. But what's really remarkable about it was that the precedent that it established, because after the Ruxton case and the notorious trial, it was a trial of the century, etc., etc., after the Ruxton case, they decided that forensic science would not be some peripheral aspect of criminal investigation, but would be part of the mainstream. So every police force thereafter had detective training, every police force thereafter had fingerprint training, and a group of regional forensic laboratories were established all over the country. It's a great story, and I would really recommend it. If you have any interest at all in investigation, and particularly forensics, that's the one. I've read that book, and it's fascinating. I think I read it in like just a couple days. Burned right through it. Yes, and we'll put the titles up on our website, and they're in Tom's bio, so you can get right to that info. Give us another. What, another book? Well, I wrote two books about the World's End murders, but the last one is probably the best one to read, and it's called The World's End, The Final Verdict, and it was published in 2013. It's not as explicit as the Ruxton book because quite a few people were still alive, and so you've got to be very careful. Well, Tom, this has been amazing. Once again, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Honestly, we could... We could just make an an entire season out of your stories. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Take care. And thank you for your service. Not at all. Thank you. And keep going. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Logan Heftel, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor, The Real Nick Smitty, and Alec Cowan. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soren Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. Small Town Dicks would like to thank Speech Docs for providing transcripts of this podcast. 
You can find these transcripts on our episode page at smalltowndicks.com. And for more information about Speech Docs and their service, please go to speechdocs.com. And join the Small Town fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at smalltowndicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.